Hello and welcome to the Inspired Equity podcast. My name is Neely Pudera and I am here with my co-host, business partner and husband, Richard. We are the founders of Inspired Equity, the London-based investment business that specialises in property acquisitions and developments. Between us, we are world record holders, international property investors, prolific networkers, speakers and coaches. On each show, we will be discussing all aspects of successful property investing, covering everything from simple buy-to-let properties to multi-million pound developments. We will be interviewing industry leaders and hosting live Q&As with expert panels and keeping you up to date with the ever-changing and exciting world of property. It gives me great pleasure, as always, but especially tonight, to introduce our guest speaker. Actually, our guest speaker tonight was is, is our first guest speaker that was actually been pronounced dead and brought back to life. This happened while serving his, in his 42-year career as a, as a policeman and law enforcement officer, which I'm sure he's going to tell us all about um, later on. Frank is an author. He's been a keynote speaker for 33 years and has won so many awards. That, that I can't list them all, but for his life-changing work that he's cre with creating the Make-A-Wish Foundation. He's also gone on to support many other non-profit organisations and some of his most notorious awards being the White House Call to Service Award, given him to him by both George W. Bush and President Trump. So he's, as Richard, went on and said then he's academy award nominated film wish man and book which is a story all about frank's life story and how he come about creating the make wonderful make a wish foundation which has gone on to fulfill over half a million wishes of children who are critically ill so it's such, it's such a heartwarming film and heartwarming story and leaves you inspired to go on and go out there and give back and help others. So welcome, Frank. We are so grateful and honoured to have you here with us this evening. Over to you. Welcome. Nina, Richard, thank you for the invite. This is so much fun. I'm in uh, the mountains in northern Arizona, uh, Prescott, Arizona, a little town where I'm talking from. Uh, it's only 5,200 miles away from London, <clears throat> so this is this is so much fun that we can do this virtually. And I have a special place in my heart for the for Great Britain, the British Isles. Uh, during my Air Force years in the early 60s, I was stationed at two bases inland. I spent three or in England. I spent three years in England, uh, stationed at RAF Upper Hayford and RAF Greenham Common. <clears throat> And one of the big, big things for me, my, my best memory of England is I was a history buff studying uh, Sir Winston Churchill during school. I just admired the man, everything about World War II. And in fact, one of the big things when I did get over to uh, England was to study all the history of World War II. It wasn't that many years after World War II, but I was also on what they call the base honor guard for the US Air Force. And when Sir Winston Churchill died uh, in 1965, I was so honored to be part of his funeral procession. In fact, on the final final procession going to uh, St. Martin's Churchyard at, uh, at Malden. And 
we're supposed to be at attention. We're supposed to be everything. I, the procession goes by. I've got tears in my eyes. I can't wipe the tears. But it was just an honor for me. And I remember that just all the time, just all the time. But going back and, and um, everybody that's listening, um, and we're nationwide, worldwide, maybe, uh, there's been events in your life um, from childhood to current years that have helped develop your character and your integrity. And those two traits are not, in fact, inherited. They are developed by, like I say, events in your life, people, and so on. And I was so fortunate to have some people in my life to help develop that. And it's uh, a strange story from childhood, so strange that Hollywood approached me several years ago and said, we want to do a movie about your life. <clears throat> but just briefly, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. And at age two, my mother left my father. Where she went, I have no idea. And from age two to six were very happy years with my dad, my grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, the family things. I'm a city boy, but the family things, the picnics, everything else, just very happy, fun years. And uh, kindergarten at six years old uh, on a playground, a lady came up, grabbed me, said, I'm your mother, you're going with me. I had no idea who this lady was and dragged me off the playground, kicking and screaming. Uh, and in fact, kidnapped me because my uh, father had full custody and threw me in a car and uh, I'm trying to get out and a couple smacks on the head stops that. And she said, we are going to Arizona. Now, I didn't have geography yet in kindergarten, so I didn't know where Arizona was. <clears throat> but again, just started driving and for the longest time, and finally pulled into a, a campground, uh, uh, and we found out I found out we're in Michigan, up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And this campground is right on the shore. She stops in front of a tent. Now I'm a city boy. I've never been camping. She said, "We're home." I said, "What do you mean home? This is a tent." She said, "No, that's where we're going to live." And this started this whole existence for the next several years of survival. Uh, the city boy, all of a sudden, having to live in a tent, having to look for food, always being hungry, always being cold, never had the proper shelters. When the winters came in Michigan, an old flop house, just a, a nasty place, of sleeping in cars. <clears throat> and again, but I started learning survival. I started learning how to take care of myself. At age 10, my father, who had been looking for us all these years, found us. And in fact, went to get the local authorities to have her arrested. And during that short period, she threw everything we had into a old station wagon she had, and we left. And this time it was to go to Arizona, uh, which from Michigan to Arizona was almost 2,000 miles. Now she had no money, <clears throat> and it took about six weeks to get to Arizona. She would stop in a, every town, get a job as a waitress, enough money for gas, a little bit of food, and sleep in a car and get going. Um, ended up outside of a little town called Seligman, Arizona, which is on old Route 66, right off, not far from the Grand Canyon, uh, not far from the Indian reservations, and completely ran out of gas, pulled over. And it's the first time at that time I'd ever seen my mother cry. And she's, I have no money, we have nothing, we have no food, I don't know what I'm gonna do. A rancher stopped by, asked what's going on, she explained the situation, he said, stay here, I'm gonna go get a gas can, then you follow me back to the ranch house and we'll see if we can help you out. Well, helping us out, we ended up staying with him for several months 
our, our bed was on his kitchen floor, a very small uh, ranch house, um, but it was shelter, it was warmth. It was, he would, family would feed us breakfast in the morning. It's the first time that we knew we were gonna have food. Uh, biscuits and gravy, uh, that's my favorite today, biscuits and gravy. <laughs> But uh, again, 10 years old, and uh, I was fortunate. I got a job full-time as a dishwasher local. And this is a little town of 500 people, predominantly Mexican and Indian, uh, all surrounded by the surrounding big ranches in that area. I got a job as a dishwasher. My mother got a job as a motel maid. And after a couple months, we couldn't stay at that ranch house. And the rancher found us an old wreck travel trailer, I think you call it a caravan <laughs> in Britain, and moved it to uh, behind the hotel. And the, we didn't have, we had a bathroom, a very small, 20 foot, um, had a bathroom running water, but no shower. So, but at least we had some shelter. It was kind of our first thing of ours. But during, while working at this restaurant, I, I looked across the street and there was a Mexican gentleman building something and almost completed and I just went over and I said, uh, hi, what's your, what, what are you doing? And he said, well, first of all, what's your name? And I said, well, my name is Frank. He said, from now on, your name is Pancho, meaning Frank in Mexican. And then he said, grab a, grab a hammer, kid. Now I had never had this father figure to teach me anything. And I said, well, I don't know what to do with the hammer. He said, well, I'm gonna teach you. And Juan Delgadillo, who we feature in the movie, by the way, became my father figure. This is the first time in my life I've had this father figure. Uh, Juan went on to teach me so many things, work ethic, um, helped how to develop that character, that integrity, um, got me involved with music, got me at school. And this is the first time for a school that I was continuously in school because my mother would move us around all the time. Uh, got me involved with sports, like I said, with music. Um, and one of the things he said to me is, Frank, when you can give back. Now, this is in the mid, this is early 1950s. I said, Juan, what do you mean give back? The poor people are helping us. And he said, that's an example. Look at the widow Sanchez. She's always trying to bring you and your mom some beans and tortillas to help you out a little bit with food. Look at her front yard. It's full of weeds. Look at her porch. It needs sanded and painted. You know how to do that now. You can do that. You don't have to have money to give back. And that's the lesson I always learned. You don't have to have money to give back. And when I started in seventh grade, my mother came to me and she said, I can no longer afford you and you're on your own. And she left. Uh, I went to Juan, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And he said, Frank, now I want you to learn how to turn negative aspects into your life until positive aspects. And again, this is the fifties. This is kind of a popular term now, turn negative to positive. <laughs> what do you mean, Juan? My mother just left me. He said, I knew what was going to happen. He said, I've arranged for the widow Sanchez that you're going to be able to stay at her house and she's going to charge you $20 a week room and board. And you make $26 a week as a dishwasher. And every money I'd ever made went to my mother. I never had my own spending money. And he said, for the first time in your life, you're going to have $6 of your own a week. And in the 50s, that was a lot of money. $6 for especially when you're 11, 12 years old. And he said, that's a positive. He said, the other positive is you're going to have your own room for the first time in your life. You're not sleeping on a couch in this little old trailer. That's a positive. You have a shower <laughs> in more bathrooms 
because us kids would go to the Santa Fe. This Slidman was one of the division points for the Santa Fe Railroad. They had the big men's locker room there. The, uh, they allowed the kids in town to go to the showers to clean up because I wasn't the only poor kid in town, obviously. And he said, that's a positive. She's the best cook in town. You don't have to worry about food anymore. Well, there's no argument about that. And she had the first television set, the first telly in Seligman, Arizona. Arizona. I could watch television, all of those positives. And I just remembered that the whole life has stayed with me in my lesson. Uh, when I finished eighth grade, my mother came to me and she said, I need your help. I need you to come back, live with me. She had moved to Prescott, Arizona, where I currently reside. Uh, I can't do it on my own and I need you to come there. And I didn't want to do that because now I'm going to live in this crummy little trailer again. But Juan told me another thing. He said, you may not love your mother. You may not get along with her, but she is your mother and you respect her. And I always remember that. And through our life, we've never had that close relationship, but I did respect her. I never, ever showed any, any disrespect for her. I did move to this town <clears throat> and I wanted to try out for football. I had practiced football with the high school team, uh, could only practice because I wanted to learn the sport, but you couldn't play. Obviously, I'm too young. I go to the high school, I try out for the team. The coach says, you're going to make first string. I can't believe it. I don't know where you got your training, but you're fine. And then they found out that my aptitude test, they wanted to put me back in eighth grade because I couldn't pass a math test. The, the difference in the schools between the two towns were quite a bit different. Here's again, people helping out. The coach says, I'm going to work with you all summer. And before school starts, we're going to work with, with your math. And before school starts, we're going to retest you. He worked with me, which they did. I passed with no problems. And again, got to start my freshman year. And again, got to be on the team. But people helping me out. And I always remembered that. And I always wanted to be for these father figures throughout my life that they're helping me. I want to give back the best that I can to these folks. <clears throat> After high school, I joined the U.S. Air Force. This is Vietnam era. Uh, I was not sent in country. I was sent, as I mentioned, to England. I spent uh, my majority of my career, Air Force career in England. And while in England, uh, there was a Motorola Incorporated came to England, Germany, to the U.S. Forces bases, looking for people with top secret clearances, which I had. I was what they call then Air Police, and I had that top secret clearance because they wanted to hire you to come back to Arizona to work in their facilities on the Atlas Missile Program, not the Intercontinental Ballistic, but for the space program. And the only people that work on those were people that had a top secret clearance. And the reasons they, the engineers that were graduating college that could go into that couldn't pass a drug test in those years to get that top secret clearance. So I said, okay, I'll try that. Well, that was a very good decision. Uh, Motorola sent me to college. I used my GI Bill to go help through college. Ended up in what they call statistical engineering, determine the probable failure rates of certain components of the missile systems. Um, and my, my math teachers on high school just cracked up that. All of a sudden you're statistical engineering when you could barely pass algebra. <clears throat> but a great career at Motorola. Uh, advancement that just treated me so good. But I didn't like living in the city in Phoenix, Arizona, um, just that big city. I'm kind of a country guy. And several of my friends from high school had joined the Arizona Highway Patrol and kept saying, Frank, with your background in the service, with your engineering, 
degree, uh, you'd be a perfect fit for the highway patrol. And I said, guys, I'm making one week what you make in a month. I'm not going to give up the salary that all of a sudden I've got this new home, car, everything else. But I kept thinking about it, and just on a whim, I put in an application. This is after seven years at Motorola. And out of 1,000 applicants, they chose 50. And I was one of the 50 to be chosen. And the others were all rejected because they couldn't pass a drug test. <laughs> Again, this is an area of so much, especially marijuana usage. I said, okay, I'll give it a try. I went to the academy. Well, best decision I ever made because like Nita said, 42 years, 42 years later, I finally retired as a homicide detective with the Arizona State Police. But I was assigned immediately, I was asked to go to motorcycle training. The Highway Patrol was going to develop motorcycle squad again, and it was going to be a 10-man motorcycle tax squad that worked the whole state of Arizona. And I applied for motor school. I went through it. I passed. I said, yes, I'll accept that assignment. Now, this is for people that may remember the area, this is in mid-70s, and there was a TV show called Chips that was very popular at this time. And for people who don't recall that name, Chips was the adventures of two California Highway Patrol motorcycle officers, Ponch and John. And it was very popular, especially with the younger children, the demographics for that show for seven years and on up. And we were, we, we in fact initially trained with California Highway Patrol. Our equipment was identical. Um, our uniforms are almost identical, except obviously ours says Arizona. But we would also go usually in just two-man teams in these little towns around the state. And as we go through these little towns, now all of a sudden, the kids, the young kids are yelling, hey, Ponch, hey, John, hey, Chips, which was kind of fun. And I asked our commanders, I said, we have some downtime in these little towns. Can we go to the local grade school and talk about bicycle safety? I thought it would be a great PR thing. And they said, yes, we did that. The kids could care less about bicycle safety. They just wanted to crawl all over the motorcycles. And that was fun. That was great. And then in 1978, our whole team was sent to an area right on the California border, a little town of Park, Arizona. During spring break in the U.S., a little town of 2,000 people grew to 85,000 people because it was a very popular place with the college kids during spring break. All sorts of fatal accidents, drug arrests, homicides, rapes, you name it. And I was on a high-speed chase with a drunk driver, 85 miles an hour in a 25 zone. But another drunk driver pulled right in front of me. I couldn't do what we call our break and escape maneuver. Hit the car broadside at 85. Was told the crash was spectacular <laughs> and was pronounced dead at the scene. Now, obviously, there's the rest of the story because we're talking here all these years later. My partner tried to revive me. He couldn't do it. He called in the code 963A, officer killed in the line of duty. Every police officer I ever worked with believes in a higher meaning or whatever re religion it might be. We go to work every day. We say a little prayer. Please allow me to come home. You get home at night. Thank you for allowing me to come home. And I believe in guardian angels. Uh, I don't believe in the, the wings and the halo and the white crowns and that just that God sends somebody something to help you out in these situations. And in this case, he sent down an off-duty emergency room nurse that saw the wreck, stopped the scene, went over to my partner, I'm gonna revive him, it's too late, he's dead. Well, she didn't listen to him and for four minutes performed CPR, bringing me back to life. And that injury resulted in a lot of injuries. Um, I had a, a massive brain injury, 
uh, skull fracture, broken bones, a lot of missing skin. It took several months to recuperate from that accident. And following therapy, then they sent me to counseling to make sure my head was okay to go back to work after that traumatic experience. And during the counseling, towards one of the last sessions, the counselor said, you realize you died that night. You realize God spared you for a reason. And now it's up to you to find that reason. Well, two years later, I found that reason. I'm patrolling way up in the mountains, again, motorcycle patrol in Northern Arizona. I get a call from a dispatcher. Now this is before the days of internet, cell phones, everything. This is 1980. And she said, <clears throat> find a payphone. If anybody remembers what a payphone is. I go 40 miles an hour, or 40 miles, I found a payphone, I call in. She said, we've just been informed of a seven-year-old boy named Chris. Chris's heroes are Ponch and John from the TV show Chips. And Chris told his mother, when I grow up, I'm going to be a highway patrol motorcycle. I was just like Ponch and John. Unfortunately, Chris had leukemia. And Chris only had a, about two weeks to live. And a friend of a family, in fact, a customs agent named Tommy Austin, called the highway patrol and said, is there anywhere, any way that Chris could meet one of your motorcycle officers. And the department got very involved and said yes, and chose me to be that officer uh, because of the fact, I guess I was working with the kids all over the state for years before. But I had no idea what to expect. <clears throat> but we allowed through his mother and doctor, uh, our state police helicopter to fly to his hospital, pick him up and fly to our headquarters building. And they timed it, you know, where it was, as the helicopter was approaching the landing zone, I was coming in with the motorcycle and all I could see was this little boy with his face plastered against the glass, a big smile. He's looking down at what he thought chips because again, we're almost identical. <clears throat> Helicopter lands. I expect the paramedics to help him out. The door opens, little red pair of sneakers jumps out, runs over high. I'm Chris. Can I get on your motorcycle? Well, of course you can, Chris. He is laughing and giggling and he watched chips so much. He knew every button switch. This is a siren. Can I turn around? These are the red lights. What's in your saddlebag? The same as punch. He is laughing and giggling. I'm looking at his mother and she's crying. Why is she crying? Because she has her seven-year-old back. He's not laying in a hospital bed on IVs. <clears throat> Chris came during the next couple of days, became the first only honorary highway patrol motorcycle officer in the history of the highway patrol, complete with a custom-made uniform we had made for him, a badge that is still assigned to him today, a smoky hat. But the most important thing to Chris was his wings, making him a motorcycle officer. His wish had become true. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I learned that Chris would, uh, died a couple of days later. And I always like to think maybe those wings helped carry him to heaven. My commanders called me and, <clears throat> excuse me, and said, we have lost a fellow officer. And we learned that Chris is going to be buried in a little town called Kewanee, Illinois which is 180 miles southwest of Chicago. I would like you and your partner to go back and give him a full police funeral because we have lost a fellow officer, which we did. And again, days before internet, uh, anything, when we landed in Chicago Air Airport, we're met by the press, the big networks, the CBS, ABC, NBC, because they had heard about our mission. They interviewed us. But what we didn't know as we we're going through this journey, driving to this little town of Kwani, that they had notified the Illinois State Police, county police, city police in that area, who surprised us by meeting in this little town, that they could be part of this uh, funeral possession to bury this little boy. 
In fact, he was buried in uniform. His grave marker reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. But flying home, I just started thinking, here's a little boy had a wish and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? And that's when the idea of the Make-A-Wish Foundation was born, maybe 30 some thousand feet over Kansas or somewhere. <laughs> but coming home, uh, when his mother, when she finally got home, I approached Linda and I said, I've got this idea. I'd like to start this foundation in memory of your son. And her words were, let's do it. Now, how do you start a nonprofit? I have no idea. I don't know if anybody remembers going to the library and going through library cards. <laughs> There's no internet. I'm finding everything. And I found out what we had to do to start this nonprofit. In Arizona and most states, you have to have five board members to start a nonprofit. And that was the hardest thing, you know, was finding the other three people that believed in this mission. And it took me several months because nobody said it's not going to work. Nobody's ever heard of this. And there's so many times I wanted to give up. But then I remembered, turn all those negatives to positives. How can we make it happen? People say you can't do it. Well, let's find out a way to do it. And I've approached that in business my whole time. Find a way. If you can't do it, find a way to do it. And I did find those other people. And in uh, November of uh, 1980, we became official to make a Wish Foundation. In March of 1981, we granted our first official wish, a little boy going to Disney. And again, because of the publicity that we received because of Disney on that first wish, we became immediately known nationwide. Disney gave us so much press, which helped launch the whole foundation. And since then, that period, it's now 40 years later. And as you've mentioned, we have granted over a half a million wishes to children all over the world. Um, it's just so amazing. And people give me pats on the back. Look what you did. I said, well, I had an idea and I made it work. But look at the thousands of people around the world that makes it work, that helps it grow to just keep, just keep going this on and on. And I was the president and CEO for, for a couple of years, the first president and CEO. And one thing, I never took a salary because I wanted, I wanted that, again, I mentioned integrity, accountability, transparency, to show that all these donations coming in were going to the mission. But after a while, I couldn't do both. I, I couldn't do, I'm still a full-time police officer. And I went to our board and I said, we, we need to hire people that are smarter than us. And you've heard that in a business term, surround yourself with people smarter than you. And that's the best, best decision we've made. And this is like 1981, 1982 now, that we hired the people in the nonprofit world that had an experience that made it grow what it is today. By just this amazing foundation helping kids and families all over the world. Frank, that's it is such a wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sure delighted that, that that lady nurse that came to see you at the side of the road, I, I'm, I'm glad she ignored your partner and she carried on administering CPR because the world is most certainly a better place with you in it. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm, I know Nina's, I think I mentioned to you, Nina's got so, some questions, so she's going to uh, kick off the questions, but thank you for that wonderful um, uh, uh, talk about how it all came about and uh, your, your life story. It's, um, uh, it's an incredible. Thank you. Yeah, am amazing, Frank. And 
I was trying not to well up just with when you were talking then about Chris and, and at the end and, and that part in the film and just, oh, just, yeah, really <laughs> gets me. Um, you talk about um, Juan and, and how much he helped you and, and how much he really took over as your father figure. Um, and, and obviously he was a fantastic mentor for you throughout your, throughout your life. Um, what importance would you put on having, and so I know you mentioned there about surrounding yourself with smart people, but the importance of having a mentor to guide you through? Well, I, I think very important, and, and not just in like my young years. I still have mentors. I'm in my 70s now, but I'm in some new productions. I'm so fortunate in a new career to be involved now with a movie production, television productions that we're working on. And you're always learning. And it might be that young guy that comes up and, you know, I know more than you. Well, you know what? He does know more than me because that's his business, his or her. Listen to people. I always tell people, they ask me for eye advice. I say, well, I'm going to make suggestions to you. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to make suggestions. Filter out what works, what won't work. Apply and see if it works. But just always listen to people. That's great advice. Thank you. It's um, uh, you just touched then on the fact that you are in your seventies. Um, obviously, your feature film was only released last year, and I know that you spent six years working on that film and on set. And I know, forgive me, but you are in your late seventies. And what keeps you going? What keep? What do you do to keep yourself energized and inspired? Well, I'm not the person that likes to sit on the porch. That's why a whole career of 42 years in police, because it's always something exciting every day. Um, and when I did retire, what am I going to do next? I, I'm, I, I looked at the one ads classified for retired uh, job, for retired homicide detective. I couldn't find anything. And then was fortunate to get, I've developed a speaking career, which really took off, um, I'm going to boast I was a Forbes number one keynote speaker in 2016. But enhancing, on, well, thank you, enhancing on that, and then getting involved with the movie, which led now to my own production company. Uh, we're in development for two possible new TV series. But just keep going. And then, like you mentioned earlier, I sat on the boards of not, uh, eight nonprofits around the nation, uh, everything from helping the homeless to uh, helping veterans to foster children to police officers injured. Uh, every day, it keeps me so busy. And one thing about the movie uh, with this international office, uh, we get so many comments. We're, we're on Netflix right now. In fact, got extended for another full year because of the popularity. But every day I get messages from all over the world, either through my website or through Facebook. What an impact. And just recently, a nine-year-old girl from Ireland wrote to me, and she said, I want to give back. And I just did. And she explained she had very long hair. And she cut off her hair very short and donated it to the to the where they make the wigs for children that are going through cancer treatments. So what what I mean, I was tearing up watching that. Here's a nine-year-old that's already wanting to give back, which is the message of the movie, to give back. Um, thank you so much, Frank. Uh, one last question that there was actually uh, from Ellie. She just asked what you, what's next? <laughs> what's next? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, we're in development for two new TV shows, possibly 
We've been contacted by the major networks to develop these shows. So we finished what they called the deck. We put a cast together, script together, and so on. And now we're looking for potential sponsors. We're on hold, like most of Hollywood, as I'm going to say, are on hold because of the pandemic. People don't want to get involved with the financing, especially this one show is going to be like a, it's a reality TV show that involves a lot of travel across the United States. In fact, I'll give you the working title of it. It's called Wishman Angel Patrol. <clears throat> and what we have is, again, a reality show where I'm the host, I'm the Wishman, and I've got these angels working for me that go all over the United States, finding people, communities that need help. In California, we're devastated by forest fires, hurricanes, floods, et cetera. Uh, veterans that need help, police officers that need help. We're gonna get our angel patrol, go into the community, help rebuild whatever it is. If we need to rebuild a house, help rebuild a community. Um, a lot of stars will be involved, celebrities to bring in the people together. So again, we're development. It's taken a lot of time, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun. That sounds amazing and 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 just so inspiring. I hope everybody has taken some inspiration and, and can think of things that they can do to, to, to help others from, from hearing your story. Thank you so much again. Yeah, and, and like the theme of the movie, Wish Man, everyone can be a hero. And that's what we're trying to continue to do. Somebody needs help, try and help them. And that's what we're trying to do with these new programs. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about us and what we do, go to inspiredequity.com. Join us on our next show for more interactive property discussions. Until then, I wish you good health and continued success. Go out there and be inspired.